Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. Last week, we took a detour into a Theology Explainer episode on the doctrine of salvation. Hopefully you learned something and were encouraged by our jars and the G. The week before that, which was our last episode in Luke, we saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man. We saw the Pharisees who got in the way of people coming to Jesus. We saw the pals who got their buddy to Jesus. And then we saw the paralyzed who was in need of a touch from Jesus. And we can see that at some point in our story, we could probably see ourselves in each one of these alliterated groups. We can see ourselves sometimes as the Pharisee, sometimes as the pal, and sometimes as the paralyzed. Moving on to events shortly thereafter, In today's passage, we're going to see the number of disciples who follow Jesus grow. So let's go ahead and dive in to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Quote, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I said that these are events that happened shortly thereafter. And verse 27, starting with the words, after this, seems to imply the healing of the paralytic man was immediately followed by this calling of Levi. Perhaps Jesus left the house they were in. He turned a corner and went down the street and he saw this tax booth and he saw this tax collector. Jesus told this tax collector named Levi, he said, follow me. He called Levi to be his disciple. I think for us to truly understand what all is going on here, we have to understand who tax collectors were in this world. So the first word I'm going to use to describe tax collectors is that they were despised. It's hard for the modern reader to understand how despised a tax collector would have been in this Jewish world. I mean, I know you probably have your thoughts on the IRS, but the two are not really comparable. A tax collector was considered to be the worst kind of traitor. The Romans were in control. They had conquered the Jewish land as well as lots of other lands and peoples. Now, in order to stay in charge, they had to have a large military presence. They, they occupied these lands by force. Now, do you know what cost a lot of money? Keeping a large military presence in foreign lands cost a lot of money. Any guesses on how they were able to finance their large military presence in foreign lands? Well, they did so through taxing the people they had conquered. So tax collectors, they were natives. In this case, they were Jews who collected taxes from their own people so that their oppressors could keep their military presence in town. They would have been among the most hated people you could ever imagine. Yet they had Roman protection, so they were really untouchable for the most part. And really going along with them being despised, another word for us to understand is that they were wealthy. And it probably adds to the hatred towards them, right? But tax collectors would have been some of the most wealthy guys in town. They lived lavishly while they betrayed their own people. They would have had the nicest clothes, the nicest houses of any Jew in town. And though they were hated, they appeared to have their own community because verse 29 describes a large company of tax collectors. Though Levi was wealthy, living as cushy and comfortable of a life as he could have in the first century, he immediately got up and followed Jesus. He left everything behind just like that. His faith was proven in his obedience. 
He was walking away from his job, his money, and who knows what else. He is a good example that the wealth that so many people pursue will not, cannot, does not fill the void inside. For if it did, Levi would have kept his seat at the tax booth. And what's even more powerful and more important for us to see here is that Jesus didn't have to talk him into anything. Jesus did not have to twist his arm. Jesus did not have to lay on some kind of guilt trip or some sort of obligation on him. No, Levi was excited to trade in his position, his money, everything for Jesus. All Jesus said was, follow me. And somehow, some way, Levi understood this was the deal of a lifetime. Maybe as Levi sat at his tax booth, he saw people rush by. Maybe he saw people hurrying to join the crowd around Jesus as he taught. Maybe he heard the ruckus that surely followed the paralyzed man being healed. Maybe he saw the crowd slowly scatter and heard people gushing over what they had just witnessed. Just maybe. But whatever the cause, Levi gets it. Jesus is different. This is not a normal man. This is not a normal rabbi. This is not even a normal prophet. Jesus is something different altogether. Whatever he had to give up to follow Jesus was going to be worth it. Actually, what we see with Levi, to take this point a step further, is that he is so excited about Jesus that he throws a big party at his probably pretty big house in celebration over what's happening in his life. We know that the disciples are there. The tax collectors are there. I don't know, the the Pharisees will get there eventually, or maybe they're like peeping over or through the window, I don't know. But likely every tax collector in town has come to check out this Jesus because Levi is so excited. But before we start the conversation of what's about to go down, I want to ask a question inspired by Levi. Levi left everything to be with Jesus. His life was radically changed. And that's what happens when we meet Jesus. Things change. Now, to illustrate this, some of us, myself included, could be the poster child for this, are so fair-skinned that when we walk to our car in the summer, we can get sunburned. We can go from paper white to lobster faster than the speed of light. So think about that. The sun... The star at the center of our solar system is about 93 million miles away. That's about 150 million kilometers, or what scientists also refer to as one astronomical unit. Fun fact for you, if you were traveling at the speed of the average commercial plane, it would take you somewhere between 19 and 20 years to get there. Yet, the sun is so powerful that it can both grow life, sustain life on the Earth, as well as turn us into lobsters just like that. If the sun is that powerful from that distance, imagine what its maker could do. That same maker made more stars in our universe than we have grains of sand on the earth. Think about what coming into contact with him would do. Do you think we could really encounter the maker of the stars and everything else and leave unchanged? Of course not. Encountering Jesus is a game changer. Levi experienced this firsthand. Hand. Let's pick back up in verse 30. Quote, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? End quote. Now, sometimes when you get a bunch of folks together, someone's not going to be happy. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the people that always seem to be unhappy are the Pharisees. Now, it's almost like this group of Pharisees in this passage aren't quite ready to debate Jesus, so they use a little bit different of a strategy. For the Pharisees and the scribes, they believed you needed to separate yourself 
from everything and everyone who did not live up to their standard. They believe that if you ate a meal with someone, you were affirming everything they did, everything they said, everything they believed. Now, of course, that's a little bit extreme. They just need to calm down a little bit, right? Eat a taco or five, watch a football game. That way of thinking was deep in their culture. So when they asked the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? The disciples knew what they were getting at. Are you guys the same as sinners and tax collectors? That's the question. Are you the same as them? Are you affirming what they do and their choices and their decisions? I'd imagine the disciples were pretty intimidated in this moment. They're fishermen. They're fresh off their boats. Now they're talking to teachers of the law. Whenever I talk to someone who I believe knows more about a subject than I do, for whatever reason, my brain decides to take the day off. It's like, nope, not going to work right now. And I am imagining... That's probably what the disciples are feeling. I'm not totally throwing the Pharisees under the bus here because one of their concerns is well-founded. It's just their solution is garbage. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, one of their highest priorities was making sure Jews believed the right thing about God. They were afraid too close of contact with those who believed behaved differently would cause Jews to go astray. They were just concerned that their people would be influenced by others and leave the faith. Listen, influences in our life are far more powerful than we give them credit for. Your friends, your family, the following list you have on social media, the music you listen to, the movies or TV shows, you watch. All are major influences. They can radically affect how you think, how you speak, how you act. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, quote, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. End quote. Without a doubt, who you surround yourself with will make a difference in every square inch of your life. It's too easy to make a small compromise because someone you're close to makes that compromise. It's even easier to make the next compromise and the next one. And before you know it, you have drifted far further than you could ever imagine. And it is almost impossible possible to see yourself drifting away. We all want to be accepted. We all want to fit in. We all want to be liked. We all want people to think well of us. If we let that become too important in our heart, then we will drift far away without even noticing. It takes courage to go God's way when friends go another. It takes awareness to see ourselves drift. It takes love to care about it. So the Pharisees, the scribes, they're asking the disciples, is that what's happening with you guys? Are you drifting away from the faith? Verse 31 and 32, quote, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. End quote. Feel like my theory about the disciples' brains not working holds up when we see that it's Jesus who answers the question that was directed at the disciples. Jesus is not intimidated. He tells the Pharisees that he has come to bring healing. He's come to bring life. Basically, how am I going to reach someone if I am distancing myself from them? You cannot bring someone in and push them away at the same time. It's easier to always put distance between us and those who believe differently. It's easier to judge from afar. It's easier to make yourself sound awesome and everyone who disagrees from you sound dumb. And if you watch any national news network, what you're going to see is a bunch of people who are really good at making themselves and those who think like them sound really smart. And their opponents and those who think differently sound really dumb. Yeah, it's easier to go that way. And yeah, you're going to feel better about what you think and believe, but that's not what Jesus did. And if we're seeking to follow Jesus, then it can't be what we do either. We've got to be willing to show a radical kind of kindness that will truly 
stand out in this world. Now, there, there is a tension here, right? Like on one hand, you need to watch who your best friends are because they will influence you far more than you know. But on the other hand, Jesus was all about pursuing those far from God. So a question that should come to our minds is how do we work through this tension? How can we influence people for Jesus without being influenced away from Jesus? Now, there's something in these two verses that I think make a big difference, and it fits a pattern that I have seen in the New Testament. Look at verse 38 again, quote, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, end quote. Now, disciples, because it has the S at the end, is obviously a plural word. We haven't picked up all 12 yet, but there are several disciples here, not to mention Jesus. Elsewhere in the Gospels, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends them to by two. When Paul was sent out from Antioch on his first missionary journey, he was sent with Barnabas. On other trips, Paul traveled with Silas, Luke, and several other lesser-known folks who get their name dropped here and there in letters. Think of our relationships as two circles. We have an inner circle and an outer circle. Now, those in our inner circle are those who will influence us the most, and those in our outer circle we're not as, as close to, but we have the ability to influence. So, if we keep our inner circle godly, that gives us the security and the accountability to reach the outer circle. They're our anchor. They can be our way of staying grounded. They're the ones that if they see a drift, then they can say, hey, there is a drift here. We can influence people for Jesus without being influenced away from Jesus by keeping our inner circle full of people who will push us to Jesus. I believe this is how the New Testament models it for us. Now, in our passage, the Pharisees are thinking that Jesus and his disciples have drifted away into nonsense. We know that Jesus is always different. He's the sinless one, right? Yet what he models for us, we can look at as accountability. So if we are truly wanting to make sure that we are not influenced away from Jesus, but we can't influence people for Jesus, we got to think about the word accountability. Have you ever invited someone to hold you accountable? Have you ever given them permission to correct you, to call you out? I know that is crazy awkward, right? But we've got blind spots that we can't see. We have the ability to drift that we can't always know. What would they keep you accountable over? Well, your actions, your words, your social media use, the activities you partake in, uh, how you treat people, your prayer life, your Bible reading, all of those things and more can be things that we can be held accountable for. If there is something you are struggling with, like a, a sin or a temptation that is on repeat in your life, that is a thing a brother or sister in Christ can help you be accountable on. They can ask you, Hey, were you tempted in this way this week? Hey, what did you do when you were? Hey, what did it go? Tell me about it. Invite a friend who you know loves Jesus to keep you accountable and be willing to listen to what they say. Keep the innermost circle of friends as people who will push you towards Jesus. But don't forget to have those in the next circle who do not know Jesus so we can stay grounded in Christ yet still remain on the mission he has called us to. Let's pick back up with our conversation with the Pharisees. We're going to be in verse 33, quote, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink, end quote. They're basically saying, Our followers do all the things. They fast. They pray. Even the followers of John the Baptist. Now, we didn't like him, but even the followers of John the Baptist fast and pray. But your disciples, they eat and drink. Clearly, 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 there's something wrong with you. You've clearly been influenced by these sinners and tax collectors you keep going around. That's, that's the accusation. Let's understand something culturally here. Jews would judge a rabbi or a teacher by their disciples. 
So for better or for worse, when they were evaluating how good a rabbi was, they would look to those following the rabbi. So make no mistake about it. They're taking a shot at Jesus. They're very suspicious of Jesus, that he's just different. So the way they go about this is by questioning his disciples. So from their perspective, what they're thinking is, why in the world would his disciples be enjoying themselves at a feast throne for Jesus when if they were actually good little religious guys, they could be sitting in the corner having an absolutely miserable time. Why would you enjoy a feast when you could have a miserable time in the corner? Don't you know religious people are supposed to be miserable? Let the listener understand sarcasm. In the world of Pharisees, you could not honor God and have joy at the same time. It was one or the other. Actually, the more miserable you were, the better. Misery equals devotion. That only makes sense if you were earning acceptance. As in, look how much I have sacrificed. Notice the standard they're using to condemn Jesus. It is themselves. It's not scripture. They're making up rules in order to make themselves look holy, and the followers of Jesus look unholy. Prayer and fasting are beautiful things that should be a part of our lives, but not how the Pharisees are using them. They're not meant to earn God's acceptance. God looks at the heart. Why we do something is just as important as what we do. Don't want to be whitewashed tombs, right? We don't want to be something that looks good on the outside because of the religious activities we partake in, but is dead and gross on the inside because of the self-righteousness that is decaying our very souls. No, no, we don't want to be that. So we need to ask ourselves, what are the things that motivate our hearts? So even the good things that we do, the, the right things that we do, what are our motivations for it? Is it so that other people will look at us and be like, oh, look how awesome they are? Or is it because we sincerely, genuinely want to honor our God? God cares so much about the motivation. He cares so much about the heart. And this is something the Pharisees could never understand. Verse 34, quote, And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. End quote. So oddly enough, there's only one Jewish fast that is actually commanded in the law. It's the Day of Atonement. Uh, it's now a holiday here in America, Yom Kippur. On this day, among other things, the Jews were supposed to mourn over their sin. Fasting was connected to grieving. So, Jesus really flips this, and he uses the analogy of a wedding, which is not supposed to be for grieving. Though I've heard some married people describe it as so, pretty sure it's supposed to be a time of celebration. It's supposed to be an event that is filled with joy, filled with hope and, and love and lots of good things. It's supposed to be the opposite of grieving and mourning. So Jesus is telling them, he's like, hey, look guys, it doesn't make any sense to grieve while the long-awaited Messiah is here. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to remember that joy overcomes. One thing the Pharisees just really struggled with is the same thing a lot of Christians today struggle to see. That is, God is for your joy. I mean, the second fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians is joy. In John 15, Jesus told his disciples that he desires their joy. He desires their joy to be full. Now, of course, there are lots of do's and don'ts in the Bible, but they were never meant to make miserable religious people. They're not killjoys. It is God showing his design for life, and that will lead to human flourishing and joy. Pursuing joy doesn't mean we do whatever. It means we pursue God's design. It means we're trusting that God knows better and knows what he's talking about when it comes to life, that God is the source of joy. It means we're choosing something better. We're choosing what God says is better and that we are trusting that his word is 
true. All right, just a a few more verses here, starting in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new garment, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. End quote. Jesus closes this conversation with a parable. He's saying, just changing the behavior is like putting a new patch on an old garment, new wine in an old container. It won't actually do any good. Look, Jesus has not come to make us religious. He has come to make us new. He's not patching up the old. He is making something new. So that things like prayer and fasting aren't used to try to earn approval from God, but are truly used in worship. They're not used to get something from God. They are used as a means of responding to what God has already done for them. It's an overflow of what God has done on the inside. There was the old thinking of always trying to earn their way. I mean, maybe if they were miserable like the Pharisees, that meant they were earning more. Religion tells us to do good to be accepted, but the gospel tells us that in Christ we're already accepted, so we do good. Jesus came to make us new, not merely religious. Hear that again. Jesus came to make us new, not merely religious. Religion tells us to do good to be accepted, but the gospel tells us that we are accepted, therefore we do good. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose. And that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.